This evening I'd like to speak about the nature of the mind. In the Dhammapada, it is said that the mind is the forerunner of all things. We experience our minds as being an immensely powerful force. Our minds can be like a nightmare, terrorizing us, oppressing us, leading us into existences that we would describe, without exaggeration, as being hell-like. Our minds can also be a source of extraordinary pleasure. We can have the most grandiose fantasies, the most romantic dreams, the most exciting images, tempting us and leading us into existences that we would describe almost as being heavenly. Our minds can be like a swamp, burdened and entangled with confusion and anxiety and obsession to a degree where we feel we are gripped and held by the contents of our minds and to a point where we believe or can believe that it's never going to end that we will always be here. Our minds can also shine with the most pristine clarity, can be a remarkable source of creativity, dazzling insights, clear comprehension, great calmness. Within our minds, we carry with us the burden of the past, we carry with us our memories, our impressions, our experiences, our histories that repeat themselves again and again and again. With our minds, we carry also our plans and our ideals and thoughts about the future. Through our minds, through our thoughts, our perceptions, we can be obsessed and lost in the present, we can also be remarkably clear and come closer to the present. Our minds can be remarkably boring, <laughs> replaying the same thoughts shamelessly, <laughs> without a moment of embarrassment. <laughs> Equally, our minds can be really exciting. We can have so many good ideas, new directions, reflections, insights. Our minds can be gripped, we have experienced, in restlessness and agitation, fragmented and jumping like a butterfly from flower to flower. <laughs> Equally, we experience moments when our minds can be deeply calm, serene, focused, and tranquil. If we follow the journey of our minds in a single day or even a single hour, it is sometimes like being on a roller coaster, going from extremes, 
of heaven and hell, high and low, elation, despair, agitation, calmness. There are so many flavors our minds can take on even in a single hour. Some people have come to regard their minds as a problem, as an obstacle, an enemy, an opponent, something that they need to overcome or subdue. And I think particularly this relationship or this notion of relationship becomes highlighted on retreats because there is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. It's so difficult to get away. Even when you think you're getting away, your mind goes with you and says, you shouldn't be getting away. You can't even, you can't even practice avoidance in comfort. There is nowhere to hide from our minds. Nowhere to hide. Sometimes you see people going around kind of holding their heads. <laughs> their faces grimacing in pain. And you say, what's the problem? And they say, my mind. My mind is the problem. As if we're stuck with this record player tuned to the same track over and over and over. Sometimes we think I would be really good at meditation if it wasn't for my mind. <laughs> One small problem. I have this mind. Now part of the problem that we experience with our minds is its unpredictability. This is part of the problem. We can be calmly present and we start in the next moment to congratulate ourselves over our serenity. We're enjoying our tranquility. Sometimes it feels like such a relief if the thoughts begin to slow down and we're just there calmly patting ourselves on the back and out of nowhere, we get ambushed by another mind storm that takes over our consciousness and we find ourselves on the roller coaster again. And when we're on the roller coaster, tranquility or calmness just seems like a distant memory as we dance on some new hook of the mind. Even when we are calm, you know, when we get to a place where we feel calm and balanced and serene, you can almost guarantee that the mind is going to come in there and say, oh great, now I'm calm. It's a totally irrelevant thought. <laughs> we didn't need it, we didn't invite it, it is so unnecessary. Sometimes we're in the middle of a mind storm and then the storm stops. It just stops. We don't know why it stopped. We didn't employ any special trick. There was no, we wish we knew one. We didn't employ one. There was no special formula. But the storm passes. 
and there's a sense of no longer being mugged. You know, it's just gone. And we wonder, how did that happen? Sometimes, in retrospect, it seems so hard to believe the intensity of our mind storms. We think, where did they come from? I didn't need to do that. And yet, in the middle of the storms, they can seem overwhelming. The other problem we experience with our minds, apart from its busyness and unpredictability, is the utter, unshakable, convincing nature of the mind. They are so convincing. An example, you know, someone told me this, they wouldn't mind, I share it with you, it's a good example. They chose a walking spot, somebody else chose a walking spot that happened to almost meet theirs. And they were sure they did it on purpose. (laughs) And so every walking meditation turned into a game of chicken. (laughs) Who, who was going to turn first? You know, who was going to turn first? Who was going to trespass on the other person's territory? It's the mind. We can sit in the meditation room. One mosquito in the meditation room meets the greatest persecution complex in the world. It's after me. It's after me. It's nobody else. It's after me. You know, it's something to do with my karma. It's like my whole story of this retreat. Our things are after me. And this mosquito, is just like it. And I can go on and on and on, building up this great scenario. Now, sometimes our constructions are not always painful. Sometimes our constructions are really pleasant, just as dangerous. We see fantasies. But we can have fantasies on retreat like you never believe. Some people come into retreat thinking they have no imagination. They discover, they discover how much imagination they actually have. They can embroider their whole world. Sometimes our constructions are around insights. You know, we can be bursting, absolutely bursting with an insight. You know, we, it feels so good. And, you know, we have this insight. We say, I never knew this about myself. Now I knew, know this. It, it explains my entire past. It explains my relationships in the present. And it's going to explain my future. We've ordered our entire world according to this one insight. We want to share it. You know, we can't wait to get to a group or have a meeting with someone just so I can share this insight. You know, we even want to make a phone call from our partner, tell them about what a changed person we are, you know, already transformed. It's totally possible that by the time lunchtime comes, we've even forgotten it. (laughs) We knew we had a good insight. But they were thinking, you know, I really really had a good one, and we just can't (laughs) quite remember what it was. This phenomena of construction, in this environment, we call it yogi mind. (laughs) Not because it's only experienced by yogis, by people on retreat, but because it's so highlighted on retreats. 
In Buddhist terminology, the official name for this process is papancha. Papancha is the way in which we all can make up our own version of reality just as we go along. The way that we can do this. Papancha is about a multiplicity of thought that distorts and colors our perception of the way things actually are. Through this multiplicity of thought, a web is spun, a tapestry is woven, and through that weaving of this web, a relationship is formed to this moment which is personal and unique to us. Dependent upon our own conditioning, dependent upon our own stories, the world assumes a particular color. Those colors can change on a moment-to-moment level, but dependent upon our stories, our conditioning, our world assumes a particular color, a personal meaning for us in the moment. There are different kinds of papancha that are worth mentioning. Sometimes our world is distorted on the basis of feelings of being of pleasant or unpleasant. Sometimes our world is distorted on the basis of pleasure or aversion. A particular feeling of pleasure or unpleasant, pleasure or aversion, is projected into someone or to something. We invest someone or something with the power to delight or please us, or the power to displease or threaten or harm us. This is a projection of our thoughts, an investment of power through our thoughts. The example that is really classic to describe this investment and this projection is a phenomena that some of you who have been on retreat before will be familiar with, the phenomena that we call VRs and VEs, Vipassana romances and Vipassana enemies. On a retreat, we can be feeling, going through all kinds of feelings inwardly of loneliness or isolation or need or craving. Well, lo and behold, look what fertile ground we have here. (laughs) It's easy to fall in love with somebody. You know, we see somebody, they really delight us. You know, of course we're not looking at them, but we just, ha- <laughs> we just happen to catch a glimpse of them out of the corner of our eye, you know, a number of times. <laughs> and they really please us. We think, you know, this can get really strung out, believe me. We can be so, so sure that our feelings are reciprocated. You know, the universe is sending us messages. That's why this person is in front of us in the lunch line. You know, why their walking space is near to us. And the mind starts to spin this web, you know, based upon this investment and this projection. We can be making wedding plans, retirement plans, you know. 
And part of it is the certainty that it is all reciprocated. The other extreme, where we project the power to displease us into someone or something. It is very unusual that anyone comes onto a retreat and doesn't find someone they really dislike. <laughs> you're going to find one person, you know, in a hundred people, you're going to find someone who really annoys you, you know, really annoys you, crucially annoys you. It can be it's a little something they do, you know, the clothes they wear, the, their haircut, you know, the, the, the way that they eat their lunch, you know, the way that they sit. We can build a case. Again, we're not looking for it, but we just happen to be able to build a case. And everything this person does fits into this category of gross irritation. You know? They can do nothing right. This is papancha. A solidity is given to a relationship to someone or something that makes that relationship so unique and so personal to us. It happens repeatedly in our lives. You know, we use these words that describe the world of conclusions. We say, something's really awful. You know, it's really awful. You know, it's like the whole, we believe the whole universe is colluding in this collusion, in this conclusion. Something's really awful. You know, that, that person's really, really disgusting. You know, this is an appalling situation. You know, we have all these grand words that are basically describing our papancha. We can say something so wonderful. You know, oh, that teacher is just fantastic. It doesn't matter that that teacher annoys, you know, a hundred other people. It's so fantastic, you know. Or the, this is such a wonderful situation. We are describing the process in, of papancha. In another moment, we can feel totally different about the same person or the same object. But when we are in our web, there is a kind of eternal feeling about that conclusion a kind of eternal feeling about that way of seeing is going to last forever. This papancha, the papancha of craving for the pleasant is called tanha, papancha. The papancha that is spun on the basis of aversion is called dosa, papancha. Another form of papancha is in the territory, the area of conclusions or opinions. This is called ditti papancha. An example, again, you need, need these analogies. It sometimes happens in beginnings on retreats, and this is especially with people who are newer to meditation, but also old yogis who are grumpy. Um, <laughs> they can come and they say, you know, everyone's so serious on this retreat. You know, this retreat is so dark. It's so somber. I've seen psychiatric wards that are more fun, you know? <laughs> everybody is miserable, and I can really see that everybody's suffering. And I don't know, you know, they say to us, I don't know how you can just let everybody suffer this way. You know, they're so uptight and so tense. Well, you know, when we hold that view, I could parade 50 other people to you who would say they're having an absolute ball. You know, they're having a wonderful time. Our opinion would remain unmoving. 
you know. They're mistaken, they're deluded, of course they're not happy. <laughs> they're not having a wonderful time, I've already, I've already decided. They're, they're miserable and suffering. Everyone and always. Everyone and always. These are good words for us to look at. Everyone and always. So often they describe our papancha. Another form of papancha is called mana papancha. And this is where the sense of I identifies with an experience. Identifies with an experience. And you might have noticed this. You know, you have a glimmer of peace and you're getting your application in for the three-month course. You have a sore knee and you're in the emergency room. I am, I am. The times we say I am is mana papancha. Now I think in papancha or yogi mind is never, it does never arrive to us ready-made. You know, it just doesn't suddenly arrive as a complete package. There is a process involved in papancha being created. And understanding that process can actually be very helpful. It can be very helpful so that we don't panic in the midst of all of these webs. And perhaps in understanding that process, we may even be able to free ourselves of the beliefs that are created through the various webs that are spun. Understanding this process can perhaps allow us to step out, allow us to step out instead of feeling imprisoned and bound as if we must always be on center stage in every movement of papancha. What are the ingredients of papancha? And here I take an example close to all of our hearts, the example of lunch. <laughs> For the beginning of Prapancha, all that is needed is bare sense data or information and the sense door. This is all that is needed for the beginning of Prapancha. Now perhaps in the, you know, our schedule of the morning, we just happen to pass the kitchen for the 20th time. And there's a smell. There's a smell emanating from the kitchen and we have a nose. Here we have the base ingredients for papancha. The bare sense data of the smell meets the sense door of the nose. This is called contact. The smell is identified. It's identified. It's like the smell goes through this little computation process inwardly, and it's identified through a concept. Now we might identify the smell as garlic. Garlic. Certain feelings arise. Now these feelings are frequently based upon the past. Perhaps we have pleasant feelings because we have associations 
of garlic in the past. We have pleasant feelings arise. Pleasant feelings are followed by thoughts. We remember, oh yeah, that Italian restaurant where I first fell in love. I remember that candlelit dinner and that person I was with. This thought leads to the next thought and the next thought and the next thought. We remember then how we fell out of love and maybe we have then another feeling that arises and another web begins to be spun. Perhaps we have an unpleasant association with the smell of garlic. Perhaps we've had an experience of having terrible heartburn or indigestion in the past. The mind has thoughts based upon these feelings, based upon these associations. And we begin another roller coaster. Our minds collect together these different thoughts and we have a conclusion. We say, this is not yogi food. These cooks don't know anything. I gotta write them a note and tell them how to cook for yogis, you know. Dependent upon the way, dependent on our past experience, dependent upon our story, our thoughts will gather and collect together in a particular way. Dependent upon the way those thoughts and gather, gather and collect together, we might find ourselves at the front of the food line half an hour before lunch is served, salivating, or we might be boycotting lunch altogether. <laughs> this is the effect of papancha. Papancha creates our world and how we will experience it. It is the way in which we make up our version of reality as we go along. Now sometimes we have a lot of retrospective wisdom. We emerge at the end of a mind storm and we have this flash of clarity, this flash of illumination that says, I didn't really need to do all of that. I didn't actually need to do all of that. I didn't need to be entangled. I didn't need to be lost. And yet in the midst of it, we see how very convincing that reality was. And sometimes because we find ourselves again and again finding in those holes, falling in those holes, we feel ourselves feeling so frustrated because we see ourselves over and over again falling for the entrancement of papancha, falling for the magic of the mind. Now the Buddha had a few words to say about papancha. He had a few words to say about most things, but he certainly had a few words to say about papancha. And he said, what is the ingredient for papancha? Very simple, the ingredient for papancha is unwise attention. This is the ingredient for papancha, unwise attention. And what is unwise attention? It is grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it. Grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it. The Buddha said, wise attention is to cultivate and nourish a consciousness that rests on no thing that dwells nowhere. 
that the mind that takes its stand upon nothing is boundless and immeasurable. The mind that takes its stand upon nothing is boundless and immeasurable. A Chinese sage once said, Wisdom neither craves nor hates. This, of course, sounds like a great idea. And we wonder then, how do we get to this boundless mind, this immeasurable mind, when we experience ourselves as being so locked into the habit of papancha, so locked into the habit of breeding thoughts, breeding a multiplicity of thoughts. To uproot papancha, which is delusion, calmness and insight are both required. Now part of the practice that we have been engaging in here is a practice of samatha, a practice of focus and one-pointedness. The effect of focus and one-pointedness is that it cuts through papancha. It cuts through obsessions, preoccupations, and the busyness of the mind. We learn through our practice how to rest with ease and with calmness, with one thing at a time, one moment at a time. This is learning how to bring the mind to stillness, how to bring the mind to openness, to sensitivity, to clear comprehension. It is a challenging practice, Samatha, because the habit of papancha is so deeply ingrained within us, so deeply rooted. And sometimes Samatha practice, I have to say, is very deeply underrated in the meditative world. Often I think underrated. I mean, I notice that the most devoted advocates of choiceless awareness are those people who have absolutely schmuck concentration. Mm. It, takes, it takes a lot of effort to be one-pointed. It takes a lot of effort to be one-pointed. It takes a lot of effort to focus. I mean, some people say to me, Oh, I'm not doing that samatha one-pointed business. I just want to practice choiceless awareness. First of all, first of all, it needs to be said that we... <laughs> no one, no one practices choiceless awareness. If you have an idea of practicing choices awareness, you have already made a choice, and I would ask who is practicing it. <laughs> I would ask who is practicing it. Awareness is not some little thing we pick up and practice. Awareness is far more profound than that. Awareness is the immeasurable, fundamental essence of consciousness that is freed from grasping. So let us not kind of put down awareness by saying it's some little tool that I pick up and practice. We don't practice choices awareness. And sometimes without samatha, and we might, you know, and probably have had a sense of this over this retreat, and as we've already mentioned, that without samatha, 
the attempt to practice choiceless awareness sometimes becomes just a journey into spaciness. Just a journey into spaciness where we are just, you know, pulled merrily along by whatever is happening in the mind. Now, samatha, or one-pointedness, which is an essential part of Vipassana practice, it's not that it's separate from Vipassana practice, samatha uproots the habit of papancha because part of us, we must admit at times, has a perverse infatuation and addiction to the roller coaster of the mind. Because the roller coaster of the mind delivers us many things, delivers us excitement, drama, identity, intrigue, conspiracy, uh, future, past. All of this is delivered through the roller coaster of the mind. How would your life be without papancha? You know, without knowing what it, that means, we tend to envision that a life without papancha is somehow flat, you know, dull, you know, nothing happens, <laughs> uncreative, sit around like a marshmallow on a zaku, you know. We have this idea that that would be how we would be if we had no papancha. So we did ha do have at some times a little bit of a kind of, you know, perverse addiction to papancha. It is true that papancha delivers us drama, delivers us intensity, delivers us identity, delivers us excitement, certainly doesn't deliver us peace. Certainly doesn't deliver us wisdom. On deeper levels of samatha practice, in deeper levels of calmness and one-pointedness, the infatuation identification with papancha comes to an end. This morning I mentioned about the need to fall in love with awareness, the need to fall in love with being attentive. This is what happens through samatha. Because through real deepening in samatha, in one-pointedness, in focus, quite frankly, we come to know such depths of joy, such, such depths of inner happiness and serenity and well-being that the mind simply loses interest in dwelling. It loses interest in the activities of obsession, of fantasy, of comparison because there is a, such a deep inner knowing that none of those activities can bring us even a shadow, even a shadow of the peace and joy we can find within our own being, within our own consciousness that is liberated from clinging. It is, you know, papancha and Samatha and all it brings, it's the difference between being offered a bucket of nails and a gourmet feast for lunch. It's true, it's true that we might learn something from eating the nails. <laughs> We'd learn something from it, you know? We might even learn for a while, but it's not an experience we'd be interested in repeating a whole lot. Once we've done the learning, Samatha is like turning on the light in a dark room. It's like a sun that dispels shadows. The still mind is the immeasurable mind. And this doesn't mean the absence of thoughts. 
the still mind does not mean the absence of thoughts. Samatha, one-pointedness, a deep inner serenity, embraces all things. But thoughts arise, they pass. Without the stickiness, is there ever any a problem in a thought? In that clear, unclattered spaciousness, there is no interest any longer in constructing, but there is a richness of creativity. There is no interest any longer in embroidering the present with the endless associations of the past, because the present is perceived with great immediacy, great clarity, and great responsiveness. Within this samatha, the mind is truly a friend. The Buddha spoke of the mind as being radiant and shining and lustrous. Samatha is not enough alone to know this radiant and shining and lustrous mind. It also needs wisdom. It also needs understanding. When I practiced in Asia, I noticed this curious phenomena that would happen when I would go to, you know, say a group interview that we had a mixture of, of Western students and, and Asian students. And, you know, the Westerners would go in and like their faces would be a portrait of dukkha, you know, a portrait of suffering. They would go in, and the Asian students often tend to sit there with kind of this, you know, little smile on their faces. And we would start to talk in the interview. And, you know, the Western students would have this whole litany of, of problems and issues, you know. And, and, you know, oh, my mind is doing this, and my mind is doing that, and my mind is doing something else. And it would go on and on and on and on. And the Asians, many of the Asian students would sit there and say, oh yes, phenomena is arising, and phenomena is passing. And it used to be, I can't tell you, I can't tell you the resentment that would arise. <laughs> used to sit there and think, these folks have got different minds. <laughs> You know, there's a geographical line that is drawn between the Western mind and the Asian mind. And, you know, Westerners are born complex, neurotic, obsessed, and they're not, you know. As if, you know, it's the thing like Asians are born with some sort of anxiety, excitability ingredient left out. Of course they're not. <laughs> of course, that's total nonsense. When you look very deeply at Buddha's teaching, which is often where those Asian students were coming from, in Buddha's teaching there's an interesting approach. The mind is a sense door. The mind is a sense door. And the sense information of the mind is a sense door. The sense information that arises in that sense door are thoughts, images, plans, memories, just as sounds arise in the sense door of the ear, sights arise in the sense door of the eye, smells arise in the sense door of the nose, sensations arise in the sense door of the body. Every sense door has its sense information phenomena, a passing show that is appearing and disappearing, arising and passing. Where is the problem if we do not take the mind personally? 
we often have a different relationship and a different perspective towards the sense door of the mind than we do towards any of our other sense doors. Have you noticed this? We have often very little problem with sights or smells or sensations, or much less problem, we would say. We don't say, you know, we hear a car driving by in the road. We don't say, I am the car. <laughs> we are happy, more than happy, to let the car be the car. Hmm? We don't, when we pass by the kitchen, we don't say, I am the garlic. <laughs> we are very happy to let the garlic be the garlic. And so this is not a deep problem for us. You know, it might be a little problem, but we wouldn't say it's a life issue. You know, the garlic is the garlic, the car is the car, the tree is the tree. We are not always battling with this world. We don't always have the same equanimity in relationship to the world, the sense door of the mind. Here we often feel very differently. We have a very personal relationship, an intensely personal relationship. We are so inclined to say, I am. I am the thought. I am the feeling. I am the sensation. I am sad. I'm angry. I'm distracted. I'm reactive, I'm negative, I'm positive, etc., etc., etc. When we see that it is this intensely personal relationship that actually seems to create um, the struggles we find ourselves in, then perhaps we can accept that the mind and its activities are really not a problem at all. That in trying to make the mind into a problem, we are boxing with shadows. We are fighting with a transparent partner. The mind is not an adversary. It doesn't prevent peace. It doesn't prevent liberation. It doesn't prevent compassion. It has no power to prevent anything at all. So then where is the problem? Well, the problem is not the mind. The problem is ignorance. And I don't mean this as an insult. You know, I know in our culture, you know, it's an awful, it's, it's, we don't like to use that word. In Buddhist terminology, we use it all the time. You know, ignorance, ignorance. Ignorance is the veil of delusion that prevents us from seeing what is actually true. No one is to blame for ignorance. Ignorance is not anybody's fault. If we can take that burden off the word, we can explore actually what ignorance is. Ignorance is not the absence um, of knowledge. Ignorance is the way in which a veil of unreality is superimposed upon reality. Where a veil of delusion or believing something is imposed upon what is actually true. In Buddhist teaching, ignorance is broken down into three aspects. One form of ignorance is seeking for permanence in the impermanent. This is a form of ignorance. Why is it a form of ignorance? Because it surely leads to suffering. We would like permanence, things to stay the same, at least the pleasant. We often feel differently around the unpleasant. But we would like for permanence in identity, in a sense of I, in solidity, we would like certainty. We perceive or want to see solidity. We would wish to see solidity in a world which is actually changing. 
We wish to see permanence in a world which is actually constantly going through changes arising and passing. This wish to seek permanence leads us to live in a way in which we are in opposition to the truth of life. And so we suffer. Life doesn't make us suffer. It is being in opposition to the truth of life, to the truth of reality that makes us suffer. Seeking for permanence in the impermanent becomes a source of grasping and resistance and great sorrow. Another aspect of ignorance is to see the unsatisfactory as being satisfactory. To see the unsatisfactory as being satisfactory. To see worthiness in dwelling. To see value in clinging to opinions and conclusions. To see satisfaction projected into accumulation or security or into experience. To see satisfaction in constructing self, a sense of self or identity which is based only upon what we accumulate. To see satisfaction in seeking pleasure in our lives rather than richness. To see it as being satisfactory, to seek excitement rather than peace. To accept as being satisfactory a world of duality and separation. To accept as being satisfactory, the division between I and you, us and them, inner and outer divisions which only ever describe bondage and never liberation. To see any of this as being satisfactory brings suffering. It is why it's called ignorance. To perceive being unfree as being satisfactory is the greatest ignorance because it is a surrender of truth and possibility. The other form of ignorance is to perceive self in that which has no self. To perceive a solidity in the concept, the idea, the notion of I that resides within ourselves or that resides or is invested into anything at all. To perceive self-existence and to accept that as being the truth is to accept division and, and separation. This is the greatest ignorance. A Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. Anxiety is the mood of ignorance. Anxiety is present when we catch a glimpse of how much in vain so many of our efforts are to create a world which is certain and reliable and secure. We know it intuitively that our efforts are in vain. And so we are anxious. Anxiety is present when we seek ourselves chasing happiness and gratification and stability as a way of protecting ourselves from change, from unknowing. Anxiety is the mood of ignorance. It is a fear of unknowing. Developing insight and nurturing wisdom is really what the practice is all about. 
through reflection, through calmness, through stillness of being, wisdom emerges. It penetrates ignorance, wisdom and suffering. The Buddha compared this effect of wisdom as seen through a magic show, and he used the analogy of a very familiar magic show arriving in town that we've attended in the past, a magic show where we've sat entranced and fascinated through many a performance. We've gone with everyone else, scrambling for the best seats so that we can be entertained. And one time we decide we want to discover the secrets behind the tricks. So one time, instead of sitting in the audience with our eyes glazed over and our mouths hanging open, we decide we're going to sit in the corner of the stage and we're just going to see. And the magician enters with his black boxes and his hats and his bag full of tricks. And we begin to just look and to look at what is going on. And we perhaps begin to discover the secrets that lie behind the breathtaking miracles that are performed. We begin to see the holes and the false bottoms in the magic boxes, the secret pockets and the hidden strings. We see the buttons that are pressed under cover of the frantic waving of the magic wand. And we look at the audience sitting out there and we see their fascination and their astonishment and yet we are no longer hypnotized ourselves. For us, the show of delusion is over. The show of appearance and the entrancement with it is over. Does this mean, in the show being over, that our life is deprived of mystery and richness? No. Our life and our consciousness is liberated from what is untrue. There's a profound sense of mystery discovered. There is no magic show that can ever touch the richness and the magic discovered in suchness, in truth within a way of seeing that is boundless and lustrous, within a consciousness that is radiant and immeasurable, in which nothing can hinder and nothing can disturb, and yet which embraces all life, all things. The Buddha said that there is no higher bliss than the bliss of awakening. We have a couple of minutes quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.